Well, please uh, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, which is page 178. And on the back of the service sheets is an outline of, of, of what we'll be looking at as we uh, go through that passage together. We're beginning uh, this series uh, that we'll be in through the summer holidays, exploring these early chapters of Deuteronomy. And it's, it's one of those series that over, over the summer that many of us may be dipping in and out of as, as we go away, either for holidays or for Keswick or whatever uh, this next month may hold for you. So let me encourage you, uh, if, if that is you, to make a, a project for the summer reading through Deuteronomy 1 to 4, which is what we're going to cover in this series. Uh, and it's also what the children will be looking at uh, across the way uh, throughout the, the summer as well. And as we begin uh, this series in Deuteronomy, I, I want to reflect for a moment on what we're doing uh, right now uh, as we open the Bible together. And hopefully uh, you've found Deuteronomy 1 by now. Uh, we're, we're listening to words. Why? I mean, that's exactly and all we're doing, isn't it? We're, we're listening to words, some 450 plus of them uh, this morning from Deut- Deuteronomy and it will take me 3,000 plus uh, to try and explain it. Uh, listening to words, words, words and more words. And there are some within the Christian community who are growing tired of just words. Uh, some who want to move on from mere words, especially old words. Uh, seeking to find perhaps a new or a more nuanced understanding of God's purposes and plans in a world like ours than what we find here in just mere words. And yet that's what we're doing. Uh, Over the course of the next 20 minutes, if you're lucky, 30 if you're not, uh, we're going to be listening to words. And we're not alone. In fact, uh, the Christian community has been doing this uh, since it began. Uh, The earliest days of the Christian community, one of the fascinating comments that was made of them is they were often regarded as philosophical societies, uh, groups that seemed to get together to endlessly talk about words. Instead of uh, doing the sort of things you'd expect of a religious group, uh, they didn't seem to have uh, special rituals and ceremonies, Uh, they didn't have special religious buildings, they just met in homes often and spent a lot of time thinking about words. And yet they weren't philosophical societies. In fact, the words they spoke of uh, were often very simple words, clear words, uh, not not esoteric philosophy words. But they were no mere words of man. They were the words of God, uh, words that caused the Christian community to stop still and quiet as they listened to them. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 12 that was read out for us earlier, we we have a comparison uh, between the experience of God's people in the past in the Old Testament and the experience we have as Christians. In the days of Moses, the days that we're reading about here in Deuteronomy, God's people had gathered at Mount Sinai and they had heard God speak there. And such was his voice, his word, it was so extraordinary, so terrifying that they said to Moses, you go listen and tell us what he says, we can't hear anymore. But Hebrews 12 says, you and I as Christian people have not come to a mountain We've come to Jesus and as we come to him, as we learn of all he's done, as God speaks to us and what he speaks is written here in the pages of scripture, we are warned, as Hebrews 12 verse 25 says, that see to it that we do not refuse him who speaks. Now he's not talking about me there, he's talking about the God who speaks this word that we listen to. Now I start here this morning because I want to underline that what we're doing here week in, week out is enormously important. As we open the Bible, as we listen to what is written there, we're actually listening to our God speak. The words of the one enthroned right now in heaven. And so it is right to stop still and quiet and listen. 
And Deuteronomy that we begin in today is a book all about words. In fact, that's really what the book should be called. Somehow over the years it's been called Deuteronomy, but there in verse 1 you have its actual title. These are the words. And at the first place in verse 1 we're told they are the words Moses spoke to Israel. In fact, virtually all of this large book of Deuteronomy is made up of three sermons by Moses, three very, very long sermons. And we're going to look at one of the shortest ones. But it's more than just uh, Moses speaking. Do you see it there in verse 3? These are the words he was proclaiming of all that the Lord had commanded concerning Israel. As they sat and listened, uh, they were listening to God and what he had to say to them. Now at this point, uh, it it may be easy for us to shift in our seat as uh, we we, uh, plough into yet another Old Testament book and think, why do I have to endure a series uh, on the book of Deuteronomy? Uh, maybe uh, when I come back from holiday uh, in September we'll be doing something a bit more relevant to, to me and, and my life circa 2010 than these old words spoken to an ancient people about their situation. It's easy, isn't it, when we open the Old Testament to feel like that way as Moses goes on and on about uh, their situation. It, it almost feels like sometimes opening the Old Testament is like opening an old family album. Uh, the, the people of God of old and, and we see a few similarities, a few differences and maybe we pick up a few wise sayings from uh, those of yesteryear but uh, as we read on, the more and more we feel that this is irrelevant to our busy and complex lives and world and it leads one to ask, what are we doing here? And what are we doing here, I think, is a question being asked more and more in the Christian community as people grow tired of tired old words as we stop shaping our church life around these mere words that seem to us so dated. And at this point, let me lay my heart before you now. Where I have seen this sentiment most, this moving away from mere words, is in the Anglican church. I am an Anglican clergyman. I love being an Anglican clergyman. And so what I have to say must be heard through that, but my church is moving away from mere words. And the pace of movement is getting quicker. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because I love this church. I love this church because it's where I first heard the gospel that was faithfully handed down to me by the generations. I heard it so that I might repent and believe and be saved. I love her because she is founded on these very words that we are reading this morning. In fact, when I was ordained, this was the one thing given to me, my one tool of trade. This book. It's a church that is convinced that in here is all I need for life and salvation. It's a church that convinced that anyone who reads this book can understand it, can work out their salvation with fear and trembling. I love the Anglican church because uh, I'm with J.R. Packer who once said of her, she is the richest, truest, wisest heritage in Christendom. I love her but move out of the bubble of a place like Christchurch Forward where the word of God is still heard where faithful ministry has continued here for a long, long time. Move outside this bubble and all too often what you find is a church that is moving away from mere words and thus moving away from the God who speaks those words. And that's why for me this passage we look at today is so precious. It's been such a help for me this week as I've grieved yet further moves by my church away from her God. A week where I've started to think, as my church moves on and on, away from God's word, will there come a time where I I will need to move away from her? 
And so with that on my heart, I am thankful for God's word in season. And Deuteronomy 1 has really two clear declarations for us, two truths that I hope will rekindle our passion for what we're doing right here at this moment, as well as perhaps wake our sleepy hearts to the crisis all around. Now here's the first truth. The word God speaks is the word he spoke. If you turn to Deuteronomy verse 1, you see that these are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert on the east side of the Jordan. Here is a people who have been rescued from Egypt, who've travelled to Mount Sinai where they've heard God speak and then they've travelled through the desert and here they are at last on the edge of the land that God had promised them. Right on the edge. But at this point Moses stops their progression and sits them down to hear these words. Now as we wonder whether these words are relevant to us, realise that the people east of the Jordan, as, as Moses is speaking, are asking the very same question. In these first four chapters, Moses will repeat many words that God had spoken 40 years ago at Mount Sinai. But the problem is, as we're told in verse 3, because these 40 years have passed, almost all the people there gathered at the east side of the Jordan weren't there at Sinai. This is a whole new generation a whole new group of people with new problems, new complexities. What's God going to speak to them? What new word does he have? Well, he has no new word. It's the same word. Verse 3, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had already commanded concerning them. And again in verse 5, Moses began to expound the law. That is the law that was given at Mount Sinai. What word would God speak to this new generation? The same one. The word God speaks is the word he spoke. You want to know what God has to say to you this day? Well, it is what he said at Sinai. Now verse 6, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb or, or Mount Sinai, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighbouring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon and as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and to their descendants after them. And there in verse 8 you see why it is the same word. Because at the heart of all of God's word is this promise A promise that I think is the key to understanding the the whole of the Old Testament, really the key to understanding the whole of the Scriptures. The key to understanding what God would say to us today. This promise. I want you uh, just for a moment to flick back with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 to see how long God has been saying this same word. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, it's on page 13 of, of the church Bibles. And here we see the first time he spoke that promise Genesis 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Do you see what God promised Abram? He promised to bring him to a land and there he would raise up his descendants into this great nation and that nation would cause blessing to flow out to all the nations of the earth. It's a big promise, isn't it? One God keeps repeating. The word he spoke is the word he still speaks. Uh, The promise here in Deuteronomy 1 verse 8 is the exact same 
promise, the exact same word. And with that promise in your mind, I want you to now flick way forward in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. It's page 1169. This will be the last time you've got to flick. Page 1169, Galatians chapter 3. Now Paul, speaking of uh, Gentile Christians, people like you and I, says this in in Galatians chapter 3 verse 6. Consider Abram. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abram. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, people like you and I, by faith and announce that gospel in advance to Abram. All the nations will be blessed through you. Now there's that promise again, that same word. A promise that that Paul says that when Abram first heard it, when, when these people at Mount Sinai heard it, when the people east of the Jordan heard it, it was the gospel, the very gospel that we stand on, being announced in advance. And we are those who know how God has made good on that promise, how through this nation he would raise up his own son who would die and then rise again to bring blessing to all the nations. So in this promise you have in this word the definitive word that God speaks in our world. He keeps speaking it because it is the only word that brings blessing in a world like ours. And so listening to it and responding to it is vitally important. Every word God speaks in his word is about this promise. And here for me is where this touches down for us. Here is why uh, the word that we read is so important in our day Because our God has spoken so clearly, because he has been faithful to that word, that he hasn't changed his word, we could easily distinguish between true and false religion. True religion is very simple. It is to hear and heed God's word. Hearing and heeding God's word. False religion? Well, it's to seek to find God and his purposes, his plans for this world anywhere other than that clear and present word. Anywhere other. And I reckon in the Church of England you will find both true and false religion. Uh, All the way from the humble pew sitter right up to the archbishop. And the mixture is celebrated as rich diversity but it is a terminal condition. If God has spoken, then to hear and heed his word is what life is all about. To try and find him and his purposes elsewhere, all you've done is you've concocted religion. And we're pretty good at that. Now there are those who make religion not from the word of God but from the word of tradition. Those who build churches filled with rituals and ceremonies and say that in them you'll encounter God and his purposes for you. And yet all they've done is created a world of make-believe. Keep it going for long enough and you'll have whole generations of people who will feel close to God through these things. But truth is, as widespread as such ritualistic religion is in our church, it is in no sense, in no sense, a real experience of God. If God has spoken, then we meet him, we hear him, we encounter him in the word he speaks to us. The word of promise, a word of blessing. Then there are others who make religion not from the word of God, but from the word of experience. God's purposes now can be discerned in new and fresh ways. God is speaking a new word, a different word. A deeper experience of God is possible. If you only let him bless you in that way, this too could be yours. To encounter God only in his word is to be in the shallow end. But can there be any deeper blessing or greater experience than this? You are Abraham's 
children. Heirs according to the promise. Can there be a more complete word than the one he has spoken in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then there are others. And these are the ones I admit uh, grieve me the most. Uh, Those who make religion not from the word of God but from the word of this world. Those who as time moves on, as our world gets more complex, uh, become more and more persuaded that the word and purposes and wisdom of a world like ours can bring much blessing to the church. Let me give you an example of this uh, happening right now in the Anglican church, a, a seemingly small issue and yet part of this bigger problem of moving on from mere words. It's the issue of how we shape our church in terms of leadership. And on this God's word is clear. As this promise to bless the nations through the proclamation of Jesus is fulfilled, as the church grows and grows, we have the problem of how we lead a growing church like that. It's the same problem the Israelites had in the desert. Do you see it there in verse 10? This promise that Abraham was given that he would raise up a great nation, well it's starting to happen. Verse 10, the Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. Just what God had said to Abraham. And Moses speaking of this word, knowing how faithful God is to the word, is saying it's only going to get bigger. Because God's promised it, he says in verse 11. So as the church grows, there is a practical need to appoint leaders, to care for people, to speak God's word to them. And so there comes the question of who should lead. Well, in the case of ancient Israel, God's word was clear. You see it there in verse 13. Choose some wise, understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I'll set them over you. He says it again in verse 15. But surely that was then and this is now. Times have changed. Our world has changed. We're a bit bigger now than a bunch of people in a desert. The church, the Anglican church, for instance, is a global entity. Surely the way uh, leadership is set up in a church like that is more complex, more nuanced, more modern now. No, says God. The word he speaks is the word he spoke. Four things are told to us in verses 13 and 15. Four things God says about leadership. Four things we are to heed. Four things that the Anglican church is moving on from. Now here's one of them. God's people are to appoint men to be put in authority over them. And surely of the four, this is the most bitter pill for a modern world to swallow. Why men? I mean, haven't we moved on from from those sort of days, moved on in such a way that our world embraces what God declares from the very first pages of Scripture, that men and women are created in his image, both clothed with dignity, equal persons. And yet our world takes a wonderful truth like that and it twists it to mean men and women are not only equal, they are exactly the same. No distinction, no different roles. But God said in Deuteronomy 1, when it comes to the oversight of my people, there is a distinction. Appoint men. And you see here, not just any men. You see the other instructions, they are to be men of respect, men of understanding, men who are wise. Now I wish I had time to tell you how I think we're moving away from all four of these commands. But even in this one highlighted area, the appointment of men for leadership, uh, the word he spoke, he still speaks. Now the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2, uh, now much further on, uh, now a a global church, as his promise has gone out, as as God has fulfilled what he said to Abram, 
He says this when it comes to the shape of the church now spread throughout the world. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. I don't permit it. To have authority is the exact same phrase as verse 15 of Deuteronomy 1. The word he spoke, he still speaks. It's a word of promise and blessing. Uh, We know our God is good. We know his purposes are clear. It's a question of whether we trust him. This is a word to be heard and heeded. But just this week, uh, the church I love and serve uh, voted in its general synod to allow the appointment of women not just in authority in a local church but in authority over the whole church as bishops. Ours is a church moving on from mere words or at least from God's word. And it is a move that is met with great joy in many circles. Uh, Quotes this week uh, after the decision was made uh, were were like this. Full steam ahead for women bishops. The church can move on at last. We are absolutely delighted that the synod wants women to be bishops with full authority. This is good news for all women. But I want to say with all my heart, no, it is not. It is not good news for any women or any one. And while the church is moving on, it is not moving on to any place good. And I have to tell you, I fear saying these things, uh, taking a risk that some may view me as backward and naive and sexist. But I know with all my heart that the word God speaks is the word he spoke. And while it may seem uh, over the top to be so upset about seemingly a small issue, let, let me explain why it is not over the top, why this is so very, very serious. And do you know what happens when you stop heeding God's word? Well, have a look at these people here in Deuteronomy 1. A people who have been saved by God, have heard their God speak to them at Sinai and have now begun this journey home to the Promised Land, a journey that we're told in verse 2 should take 11 days. 11 days. And yet look at verse 3 again. This is the 40th year. 40 years they've been wandering in the desert. Now we'll see more of why it's taken so long as we go along, but at the heart the reason is simple. As they reached the edge of the promised land uh, some 40 years earlier, God gave them his promise, I will give you this land. And inseparably linked with that promise was a command they were to obey, go in and take the land. The word God speaks, he speaks that we might believe and obey him. The two are inseparably linked. Those who hear the word of God from Abraham all the way through to us are to respond by not only believing his promise but believing and obeying the commands we find there about leadership, about everything because we trust that this is a God moving us towards blessing. That is the substance of life as Christians. That is the call on us as the Church of England. We are to be people who have heard this promise the gospel gives us have seen that through the Lord Jesus, have received from him uh, the wonderful blessing that comes in the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Having received Jesus as Saviour, we receive him also as our Lord, a Lord we are to believe and obey when he speaks to us. And he says to us, if you won't obey my commands, it is clear evidence that you don't believe my promise. Now it's a great sadness to me that on a whole range of issues, not just leadership but a whole range, from the denial of God's word about human sexuality to the denial of his word about the very gospel that saves us, 
where key leaders in the church are, are, are freely deny the uniqueness of our Lord, uh, freely deny uh, the, the means of our salvation by the penalty of his blood, freely deny the need to obey him as Lord. That's what we as a church are doing and it is no small thing. You see what happened to the generation at Mount Sinai who refused to believe and obey this God? Verse 35 of the chapter, God speaks another word. You see it there? No one from this generation will see the promised land. No one. So they walked and walked and walked around the desert for 40 years until all those who had refused to heed the word of God died. Now I wonder... And I say this with great sadness because I love my church. I wonder how many more years he will give the Church of England to wander around before this church that is moving away from God's word moves no more. Deuteronomy 1 shows us how faithful God, faithful to his purposes, and we who have his full word, the word of his son, know this. God is faithful. He made a promise and he is keeping it. You know how he's done it. He's done it through his son who died in your place and then rose again. That's faithfulness. There is no more serious mistake than refusing to believe and trust and obey this God. He has made his purpose clear and he calls on you to submit to his son and the word he speaks. And if we refuse to hear and heed him, we can be perfectly sure that our future will be like the generation that died in the desert. Actually, we can be sure, as Hebrews 12.25 says, it will be worse. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who speaks And your word is a word of promise and command. Father, help us to be people who see how good your purposes are, how faithful you are in blessing not only the nation of Israel but every nation. And help us to be those who hear and heed your word as you speak it to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.